Morning, saints. <clears throat> Our study this morning in Ecclesiastes, chapter 9, beginning in verse 11, and we'll look into chapter 10, verse 1. And this is God's word. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor man, a poor wise man. And he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, Though the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Uh, We've seen a, a flow over the last couple chapters. Um, a course that has taken us from uh, the injustices, the uncertainties, and the perplexities of life. Um, That is uh, the state of affairs, Um, various circumstances that are simply beyond our control, with the certainty of death in view, that uh, all will die. Uh, Death comes to all. And also that death serves as a means for living life. It's a motivation for living. You're going to die, so live life, he says, to the fullest. Last time, knowing that our lives are in the hands of God, if you read that back in verse 1 of chapter 9, the focus was the joy of life, that is, living life joyfully, thankfully, and in somewhat of a celebratory manner. You know, he uh, says, you know, rather than focusing on the hurts and the failures and the uncertainties of life, and then refusing to enjoy life, uh, with a sense of urgency comes this imperative to go there in verse 7, right? It's a command. He's charging us uh, with the duty of of enjoying God's blessings in life. He says, go eat your bread in joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. Appreciate and participate in the festivities of this fleeting life. It's very temporal. He says, enjoy life with your spouse. This is a gift of God to you. And then, of course, uh, we closed up last time with um, doing your work uh, with all your might. Now, this next section, beginning in verse 11, going all the way through chapter 10, uh, the, the preacher provides this general treatment of, uh, from various angles of wisdom and folly. 
So it's, it seems kind of disjointed. Um, I don't believe it is. But these are just a, a, a gathering together of brief sayings, maxims, observations, counsels of wisdom that, that closely resemble the book of Proverbs. And he's reminding us that in this life there are two kinds of people. The wise and the foolish. They live two kinds of lives. They walk down two paths. It's the path of wisdom and the path of folly. And, of course, there are two kinds of results. There is profit um, and there's pain. So that, that's where he's going. So he, he leans in or he, he, he leads in uh, to these, these juxtaposed positions of life. Um, and he tells us about the certainty of uncertainties in life. Life isn't fair. We'd all agree with that. Life's not fair. It doesn't always make sense. So the next verse, verse 11, begins with a reflection. Notice he says, again I saw under the sun. He, rep- he returns now to, to confront us with the frustrations of living in a fallen world. He returns now to, to, to contemplate. He, he, he examines here life from man's sphere of existence. Life on earth, life under the sun. So he returns to the subject that, you know, we all typically have in our minds how things ought to be. We've already learned that that good things don't necessarily happen to the righteous. We've learned that oftentimes the wicked prosper in this life anyway. But there he was thinking in in moral categories. If you look back at verse 2, It's the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. He who swears is as he who shuns an oath. So there, speaking in moral categories, here um, he's applying the same principle to the category of, of man's ability our abilities as as human beings, and the fact that things don't always measure up to our expectations. That's what's in view immediately. So, you know, and and that's, you know, regardless of of minute-by-minute positive thinking. Amen? Or step-by-step positive confession, that heresy, positive confession. It will not rain today. It will not rain today. Word of faith. Well, you're an idiot because it's raining. And I'm sure you're all well aware that there's no um, shortage of of, uh, um, self-help type of books or um, conferences. You know, three easy steps to um, a better life, a better marriage, better job performance, and so on. Even in the church, we find these, these pop authors who buy into pop culture, and then the church reads this nonsense. You know, and then the church, actual believers, well, they claim to be believers, they'll say that um, success is entirely within your grasp. So long as you hear, adhere to steps A, B, and C, and don't neglect to do X, Y, and Z, everything will be perfect. Now, although we can be confident 
that the Lord has good things in mind for those who serve him ultimately. We'd agree with that, amen? All things do work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called by him. Um, Koleth here teaches us that, that the kinds of blessings we receive um, and the degree of prosperity that, that we achieve here in this life are not ultimately in our hands. They're not. In verses 11 and 12, we're, we're reminded again of the uncertainty of success through human achievement. Regardless of what, how diligent one may be in adhering to a particular formula, in you know, following this, this prescription, whatever that is, for success, there's no guarantee that all our designs and efforts will pay off. Now, Scripture does, of course, repeatedly commend wise planning and hard work. Amen? We see that throughout, especially in the wisdom, in wisdom literature. Both of which will increase our odds of success, you know, humanly speaking, from a human perspective. And this is why, um, this is how natural law is designed to work. Natural law, meaning, you know, when people with skill put forth effort and they put forth discipline, they will naturally succeed and achieve their goals. That's the practical principle. But here the preacher tells us that's not the way it always happens. Real life doesn't always live up to our perceived hopes and expectations. That's what he's laying down. So he observes here that that human life is very unpredictable. Unexpected things happen, and they, whatever they are, curve the course that we have set or that we have in our mind. So here then, notice the, the uncertainty of success through human effort. Verse 11. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Now, ordinarily, we would expect things to go well for the extraordinarily gifted persons. Amen? The fastest, inevitably, will win the race. The strongest will win the battle. The wise, the the, the wisest people are never lacking, typically. The most intelligent are usually the wealthiest. It's not always the case, but most often. And the most knowledgeable will be shown the most favor. But, it's the big but, life is unpredictable, he says. And human rhythm and human reason alone is not the mathematical formula for success. Because two factors are at work. Two factors that overturn human probability. And that is, according to the text, time and chance. Two frustrating Two frustrating, unpredictable factors that neither man, nor science, nor society has any power over. No power. Regardless of how hard natural man tries, in putting everything in its little place, 
So everything will go as desired. He says here, time and chance happen to them all. So time here has to do with a period of time. Okay, now when we talk about time uh, here in Ecclesiastes, um, we know that time can refer to seasons of life, right? Chapter 3, which that's going to be the sermon today, by the way. Chapter 3, seasons of life. You know, nature and its cycles. Um, For everything we read, there is a season. There is a time for everything under heaven, chapter 3 says. So time is referenced by that which is a season or phase or stage where events occur. And the other has to do with points in time. So points in time occur within seasons of time. So you have events of time occur in a season of time, and verse 11 is referring to a point in time when something happens. A particular event occurs. And here it's when chance occurs. And chance here, this is not the idea of fatalism, but this literally means something falls in, when something falls in, when something falls into your life. Something that happens that you did not see. Something that happens you did not expect. You didn't account for this. This is an unanticipated event that falls into your life. So you, you couldn't account for it. You, you didn't plan for it. I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift. So the natural mathematical formula is that the fastest runner who's given to diligent training, they'll win the race, but chance. Say, for instance, uh, an Olympic athlete trains all their life, but very hard for four years. And then on race day, you know, they wake up uh, with a stomach virus. Or in the first race, they pull a hamstring. Chance. You did not prepare for it. You didn't see it coming. The fastest relay team, you know, they win every race two years preceding the Olympics. And then in the final heat for the gold medal, somebody drops the baton. You know, Lolo Jones, 2008, 100-meter hurdler, uh, was favored to win the gold by by far, to beat everyone else. And then in the the final race, um, she tripped on the ninth of ten hurdles and came in seventh. Chance. Now, it's, it is pointed out by Hebrew scholars, by the way, so you know this. The teacher may have in mind here a courier rather than an athlete. They say because, you know, the Greek games weren't introduced into Palestine until long after the book of Ecclesiastes was written. But the point's the same, okay? So I don't need any emails from anybody. <laughs> point's the same. The race is not to the swift because of time and chance, nor the battle to the strong, right? The strongest army doesn't always win. You can have heavily armored Goliaths who are taken down by a barely dressed David with his slingshot. The strongest army perhaps didn't prepare for strange weather conditions and they're overtaken in the fog or something like that. You know, the, the most prudent financier, when, when the market crashes, realizes he wasn't as smart as he thought. 
time, chance happen to them all. There's those who have a proven track record of faithfulness, trustworthiness, and diligence. Though they should be shown favor, they're not always shown favor for reasons that are beyond us. The best and honest, most honest politician isn't always elected. Sometimes the bad contractor gets the bid, this type of thing. The best employee oftentimes is overlooked for the promotion, this type of thing. Dwayne Garrett comments on this portion. He says this, quote, We are all victims of time and chance. And so saying, the teacher is not abandoning his earlier position that the will of God determines all. He's merely looking at the arbitrary nature of human life from a human rather than theological perspective. Merit is not always rewarded, and the world can be unfair. Wisdom and skill and hard work can promote, but not guarantee, success. End quote. And such are the curveballs of life. Amen? They come at us seemingly out of nowhere. That's kind of the point. So while Scripture does indeed commend wise planning, hard work, which increase the odds of success, there's no guarantee, he's telling us, that our talent and discipline will ultimately pay off here and now. But that's not why we do it. We do it for the glory of God, because he tells us to do it. Because he tells us here we're subjects to to both time and chance. And again, chance here is not seen as a force operating outside of God's control. Some impersonal metaphysical power source. It doesn't mean that. Ecclesiastes has repeatedly taught us about the providence of God that the Lord has established every time and season. We'll be reminded of that again later this morning. He's established every time and every matter under heaven. Ecclesiastes 3. So here he speaks of things as they appear, that is according to to, to the human eye, uh, to make a very um, important point. No matter how carefully we plan or how hard we work, the swiftest may lose the race, the wisest, they may not, be, may not be shown favor, and so on. And ultimately, totally, the totally unexpected, die. My neighbor has two daughters, and she was toting around two other kids that aren't hers for a few days, and my wife and I inquired when she was over talking, she says, yeah, yeah, those are my friend's children. It says their father went to bed last night, 32 years old, never woke up. He died in his sleep. Totally unaware, totally unexpected. Philip Ryken cites a newspaper story of a man who played the Connecticut lottery for 20 years every week. Finally, November, 20, November 1st, 2008, he wins $10 million dollars. Died that night of a heart attack. (laughs) It is appointed unto man once to die. And then the judgment. So all kinds of, of apparently random circumstances and events can frustrate our best intentions. Runners can trip. 
the strongest can lose. You know, Mike Tyson, when he, I don't even know if you follow boxing. Back in, I think it was 1990 or 91, nobody thought Mike Tyson could be beat. Heavyweight champion of the world at the time. Unbeatable. They wondered if he was even human. And then Buster Douglas put a whooping on him. Totally against the odds. Whoever bet on Buster Douglas that day, if you're a betting man, which I'm not, they made out. The most talented people can fall out of favor. Look at Hollywood. They raise people up, oftentimes to tear them down. Showing all kinds of favor. Happens all the time. It happens to believers and unbelievers alike. We live in a fallen world. And next he goes on to say that that you cannot anticipate the time of disaster. And he illustrates that next in verse 12. He says, for man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken an evil net, like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. So picture a school of fish swimming and playing, having you know just fun ruckus with one another. Swimming about, and at once, you know, a a net is cast over them, and they're taken in the net. Or birds, there's birds on the ground, pecking the ground, eating seeds. There's a little decoy over there, and they think that there's no prey around here. This is great. And all of a sudden, they stick their head down for a little snack, and it's right in the, the seed is in the middle of a noose. And they put their head down, and they're caught in the noose. Trap, that's the picture. Neither of them knew it was time to be caught. Snared. And so, he says, are the children of men snared in an evil time, unaware. Man has no ability to control the factors of time and chance. The factors of time and chance actually control us. We don't control time. We, we don't control that which falls upon us. And we can be taken in this evil net. And evil doesn't re- refer here to moral evil. God wouldn't introduce moral evil, some kind of evil in our lives. What he's talking about here is the calamities that fall. Calamities that fall suddenly, unaware. Some kind of disaster, unknown, falls at a very inappropriate time, right? It's always inappropriate, isn't it? The timing is so bad. It's always bad. That's the point. Disasters and loss, it's, the timing's always bad. Because the point is you never prepare for them. We're, we're unprepared. We're caught and in this evil net. It's unpredictable. It's inevitable. It's inescapable. We do not control time. We do not control events. A lot of people live a life full of anxiety because they try to control time. They try to control events. So they're full of anxiety. They lose all kinds of sleep about things that they're worried might happen, and perhaps they never do happen. So here he's, in, in spite of skill, and in, in, in spite of planning and effort, the, the absolute outcome of life is uncertain as regards that which we have planned because of time and chance. Now, to the unbeliever, this can cause a great vexation. It's, you know, it's bad luck. This is a bad thing. They become many times deeply angered when these type of things occur. 
because their plans have been overcome at the wrong time. So they may not admit it. They, they, they may profess to be an atheist, but deep down they become incredibly enraged towards God. So from an under-the-sun worldview, this is where the idea of fate comes from. So you want to escape this, you know, and, and, and you say this is a metaphysical, this is beyond the physical type of force or influence that has uh, caused this, an impersonal, irrational, cruel kind of fate. And that's man's attempt, fallen man's attempt, unbelieving man's attempt to deal with this reality, but it provides no comfort. There's no hope. Some people respond by giving up. If you're not going to, look, if, if, if I'm the fastest, I'm not going to win the race, why, why train? Why even enter the race? Why prepare for the battle if the strong doesn't win? This type of thing. Why should I study and develop my mind if it doesn't bring me you know, riches or favor? I'll just check out. So the, the factors of time and chance cause many people to, um, to despair. And even some professing believers I know, they, they, don't, they do not understand the sovereign purposes of God. They refuse to believe that God is absolutely sovereign over every single thing in this life. And they fall prey to this. And it leads to bitterness and anguish, or both. No person of the world is more bitter or, or full of anguish than, than someone who falls prey to this who's a believer. So the biblical answer is not impersonal fate, but personal faith. Amen? Personal faith. To know that, that time and events are in the hand of God. He controls it all. And he has a much bigger purpose than we can even um, imagine in our minds when we go through these uh, difficult seasons and trials. It's not to make light of seasons and trials. I, specific, I, don't, I really don't like them. I don't like to be in pain. I don't like to be uncomfortable. Does anybody? No. But in the time, he provides the grace for us to endure. And then we have to be reminded of these things and remind one another of these things as per the word of God. That's what chapter 3 is all about. And he's the one who determines what those things, what those things are, whatever they be. Now, verse 12 reminds us that our inability to see the future means we cannot anticipate or prevent all the evil that might come against us. Sudden, unexpected calamities, you can't prepare for them. Ultimately, our success, it's in the hands of God and that which he has ordained. Now, verses 13 through 16, you know, this isn't just a perfect kind of flow in these verses, but uh, he tells a story to make his point. And that is, the wise oftentimes are quickly forgotten. Right, so we go through all of these trials in life, and what we don't want to do is throw away godly wisdom. We don't want to lend ourselves to folly. That's kind of the idea and the flow here as we go through, and he provides all of these little scenarios. In verse 13, he tells the story. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. 
There was a little city with few men in it, and, great, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was, but there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. So a little city is under attack by a mighty king. Uh, On the surface, they would have no hope. Yet here's this little poor man, this insignificant man. By his wisdom, he saves the city. Whatever it is, it doesn't tell us what it was, how it was, when it was, if this is a true story or not. It just says that he saves the city. So surely you would think the man would be honored, right? You think the man would be rewarded. You think he would be remembered. He saved their city. Perhaps he was honored for a few weeks or maybe a few days. But then life returned to normal. And after a while, he was that same old, poor, insignificant man. No more thrills, no more shrills. That's the story. In verse 13, where where he says, this seemed great to me, it means this had a great impression on me. People under the sun don't often recognize true wisdom. People who are unbelievers living in this world do not often recognize great and substantial wisdom. And more than that, rarely are they remembered because they have no social status. This man had no social status. And he goes on to say, in spite of the fact that wisdom is superior right, to physical strength, men do not recognize it for what it truly is. Unless you're, you have some kind of rank or status, as you live under the sun, if you're recognized, it'll be for a short period of time. So don't be surprised if you're forgotten. Amen? Don't be surprised. Because worldly people, people under the sun, people who, who are not believers, that is, despise those who do not have worldly symbols of, of power, prestige, authority, success. They despise it. But yet some of the wisest men and women in the world lack all the trappings of prosperity. So their wisdom is set aside. Listen to Proverbs 19. Wealth brings many new friends. But a poor man is deserted by his friend. Now, I've never experienced being incredibly wealthy and then gaining a bunch of friends by it and then losing my wealth along with all the friends. But you know for certain that there are those people who've experienced that. Verse uh, 6, Proverbs 19, Many seek the favor of a generous man. This would be like a generous prince. And everyone is a friend to a man who gives gifts. All a poor man's brothers hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He pursues them with words, but does not have them. So what's the lesson? It's simple. People aren't interested in listening to one who has no social status. So don't be surprised if people are not grateful for what you've done. This is how we would apply it. People can be incredibly fickle. They'll, They'll hold you up one day as their hero because of all you've done for me. You've done so much for me. You're so great. 
You're their hero. And then they turn on you and attempt to tear you apart. So he says, the story, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. This little, this poor little man, insignificant man, saved a city from a greater, more powerful king. But he had no social status. So all the applause didn't, if there were any, if there was any, it didn't last long. You know, you think about a large company having some great problem, and they can't come up with a solution. But there's some guy who works on the assembly line on the floor who, who knows what the problem is. He has the wisdom, but he's not heard. He's not part of management. He's not part of the white-collar roundtable. So he's not even, they don't even inquire of him. He may raise his voice, make a statement. I know what it is. He'll go unheard. You know, you can go above and beyond the call of duty at work. Should you be honored for that? Yeah. But the point is you're not. So here we're not, we're not promised that we'll always be noticed for the good that we do. There's no guarantee. Joseph. Genesis 40, Joseph, you know, helped the, uh, uh, the Pharaoh's butler while he's in prison. Remember? And he said, just remember when you get out. Was he remembered? No. He wasn't remembered. Mordecai, in the book of Esther, he, he, he uncovered the plot against the king, and we're told he received no reward at the time. And parents, hopefully this won't be the case. You know, as your children are growing and they depend upon you and they love you and they respect you, as they get older, perhaps, I hope, I hope they don't punk out on you. But they may begin to take you for granted and show little thanks to you or for you. The principle, don't be surprised in that little story. Now, for the Christian, these kind of setbacks are short-term, amen? Compared to our long-term gains. And that's what, we have. This, that's what this literature does for us. It helps us think about long-term gains, not short-term. Short-term is here under the sun, the sphere of man's existence on this earth, where we live, where we physically breathe, but it's fleeting. The years go by quickly. God promises that wisdom that is from above in the long term cannot fail. Amen? So we don't want to throw wisdom out the window. We don't want to forsake it and lend ourselves to folly. Verse 17. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. But one sinner destroys much good. So here we see that wise men and fools are different in the way that they speak, how they present themselves. So at times, when the rantings and shoutings of a ruler seem to demand attention, just because he's rambling on, 
doesn't mean he's wise. Just because he's a ruler doesn't mean he's wise. Because it may be the quiet guy in the back who says nothing that has all the wisdom. So wisdom doesn't necessarily belong, he says, to those who are in positions of authority. It may, and you would hope that it is, but that's not always the case. See, the problem in our day is that the more sensationalistic an individual is, we give them more ear time, right? And if you want to get on the evening news, just say something stupid. You see the GOP debates? Are you kidding me? Are we in junior high here or what? Right? But our flesh is drawn to that. Unbelievers are drawn to the loud sensationalist. Fools are arrogant and loud. And it's not loud in volume. Spurgeon spoke loudly. They had no microphones. Right? And he preached to 6,000 people. So he had to transmit his voice. That's not the kind of loud we're talking about. You think of William Churchill. He spoke firmly. But neither one of those men are trying to draw attention to themselves. There was a purpose behind their volume. And they were wise in what they said. So he says the mightiest weapons of war are of no comparison to divine wisdom. A lot of noise can be made with very little wisdom. And when a weapon has a, when a fool um, has a weapon in hand, you know what you need to do? Take cover. Duck. Like that lunatic over there in, what is it, North Korea. Nuclear armament in the hands of a fool does much damage. It destroys much good. Verse 18. Now, although sinners, that is unbelievers, may inflict all kinds of harm with their weapons, whatever those weapons may be, uh, on believers, any victory they they achieve is very short-lived, beloved. Amen? It's very short-lived because all who are in Christ will one day participate with Christ in judging... 1 Corinthians 6, fallen angels, right? So it's very short-lived, this time under the sun. So with all that in view, embrace wisdom, because in in the midst of unseen calamities, in the midst of uh, unpredictable politics and unpredictable loud rulers who lack wisdom, amid the probability of good ideas being squelched, your wisdom is not heard, And it's all due to the fact that you lack social status. In the midst of all that, and in the fact that that it only takes one bumbler to destroy much good, don't sacrifice your wisdom. That's what I see here. Don't sacrifice your wisdom. And then in chapter 10, verse 1, the preacher summarizes his point with a proverb. Notice, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. So here's a picture of the ancient perfumer. He works very hard in mixing all of his ingredients together to get just the right scent 
and it attracts a, a, a swarm of, of flies, and I don't think this is your common household fly. Literally, it's dead flying things, so I think you're better off thinking about some large kind of odorous bug that's drawn to this, a swarm of them, and their carcasses turn the pleasant scent into this rancid whatever. In the same way, it only takes a very little bit of folly to spoil wisdom. So what's in view here, I think, is that a reputation of wisdom and honor gained by many years. You just don't gain this kind of wisdom overnight. But this kind of wisdom and honor, whether it's morally, it's ethically, it's along with one's skillful, skillful actions and decision-making throughout time, very wise, according to the word of God, can be ruined by one act of folly. Spoiled. Gone. Notice he says a little folly. A little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. So it can cause his good reputation now to give off a foul stench. One little act of folly. Now, had this perfumer used wisdom, he would have covered the ointment overnight or whatever it was. So there's, there's a lack there. Should have covered the ointment. This is his masterpiece, right? A wise man can be ruined by one little act. Derek Kidner again says this, it's easier to create a stink than to create sweetness. True, amen? We've read it. The wise man's not heard. But a little bit of folly, everybody knows. It's obvious. So wisdom can sometimes be snuffed out. Don't let go of it. Back in chapter 7, verse 1, A good name is better than what? Precious ointment. Better than precious ointment. So stay clear of folly, the antithesis of wisdom, by a lifetime of careful study of God's word and thoughtful reflection in the word and of time, life on this earth and we can overcome the folly. Amen? Oh, I pray every day. Lord, please, do not let me give myself to any kind of folly for your glory. Amen?